Hello and welcome to the Chorus in the Chaos podcast. My name is Jack and this is part four of the mini-series I'm doing on uh, a defensive infant baptism. We're in the middle of season two for our podcast. We're taking a little bit of a break, so I'm using that opportunity to run through this little short mini-series. If you've missed the first three uh, episodes on that, I'd encourage you to go back to listen to them because they do build on one another. And much of the concepts and doctrine and uh, hermeneutical approach and interpretation, all that stuff I've been ta- I'll have been i be talking about in this episode is built upon uh, the other three. And this particular episode, I'm going to spend some time. This will be the final one in the series. And then again, we'll jump back into season two. Also, uh, Grayson is in the process. He's feverishly working to record a uh, believer's baptism only kind of counterpart or complimentary uh, episode slash series to um, to this one. So be, keep be on the lookout for that. That'll be in the pipe for the podcast soon. Uh, either way, moving forward. So episode four, that is this one. And in this one, I'm going to focus on several passages in the New Testament that present anecdotal evidence of Christian op- Christians operating within the covenantal theological framework, and specifically kind of that two-tiered uh, theological framework that I've described, or covenantal framework, rather, I, I've described in previous episodes. And and I think I think it's important to uh, to do that. This was over time. This this these verses and context and the scripture that I'll reference in this particular episode were really impactful for me personally because as I began to study the scriptures. And began to see this covenantal framework for me personally. It was many of these verses that really continued to kind of build the argument uh, in totality for this reading of scripture that that builds up and upholds the practice of and the framework for uh, infant baptism. Um, so I'll admit, I, this is this is for for me personally. This is a uh, a podcast, if you want to call it that. Or again, this is based off an article I wrote several years ago. But putting this together for me, it was very meaningful. Something I wanted to do, as you kind of begin to notice things in Scripture, it was a formulation of thoughts. Um, <clears throat> so uh, again, I want to say, as I said from the beginning, that all that being said, uh, as important as the issue of baptism is, it is a secondary issue to the gospel. And Bible believing Christians, we sh- we shouldn't divide over. We may have different denominations. But it doesn't mean we break fellowship. Um, my overarching theme in this entire series is not so much to, to point out and call out Baptists who say that they're wrong, as much as point out to, to the person who doesn't have an understanding of infant baptism. That's really who this series has been for. And I hope if that's been you, it's been helpful to understand that this isn't just something that uh, a doctrine that's been left over from Rome. It isn't just something that we kind of made up along the way. There are scriptural reasons and, and biblical reasons by the way we go to the Bible and understand the Bible that we're trying to be faithful to God's word in the baptizing of infants, right? So on that point, as I pointed out before, uh, anyone looking for an explicit scriptural statement or command to baptize infants, uh, you're not going to find it. I can see that. However, the inverse of that is true. There's not a verse stating that baptism belongs only to believers, so both sides are arguing from a or coming from a position of silence, right? And I think, as I've argued in previous episodes, that that position of silence is weighs very heavy on the covenantal uh, infant baptism side. Um, so yeah, as we go to do that, as we begin to validate that, identifying these texts in the uh, New Testament that serve as further evidences of that framework to me, goes a long way in validating the way that we're interpreting the Bible. Essentially, if we're making this this hypothesis that this is the way we should read the Bible and understand it, these other texts 
are confirmations of that and can provide some validity that, yeah, this is the way we're to understand the way the covenant is structured. And therefore that, that, that uh, continuity between circumcision and baptism is valid. So let's run through some text, and I've got a handful of text here uh, that I'll that I'll walk through. And the first being um, the household. I'll call this little section the household baptisms. Um, and one of the more common scriptural claims for evidencing this common framework within the New Testament is these household baptisms found found in the Book of Acts and First Corinthians. And the primary argument here is that like the nation of Israel, the early church adopted a covenantal approach to adopting faith within the home. The first century was full of new Christian converts. They would have followed the sequential model of repentance and then baptism, which is very common. We, you know, people are pretty familiar with that. But the question is, what about the new converts' children? You know, their their servants, so forth. Aside from Acts 2.38, which does include children in the pomp in the promise, Scripture gives us the household baptisms to understand this uh, this process. So you have a new convert. Well, what does he do after he's converted? Does he do anything? Does anything happen with his family? Does he become converted? And then by extension, does something else happen to the family? Um, and to me, there's something very natural uh, about these household baptisms. As Christian parents, we all desire to raise our families and our children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. Uh, we teach them the Bible. We take them to church. We teach them how to repent. We encourage them to really make the faith their own and live it out. And frankly, I view that very similar to what's happening in the text, these texts that I'll run through in just a minute. Christian parents, new in their faith, are we see here sub, submissions of the entire household to the law of Christ. So I'll read a couple of verses here. Uh, again, these are this is not going to be a, a grand exegetical uh, effort on many of these passages. I'm just reading them for summary value. Feel free to please dig into those on your own. And, uh, and, uh, and go from there. But Acts 16, 14, uh, and 15, uh, quote, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized, and her household as well. Uh, Acts 16, 31 through 33, And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, washed their wounds, and he was baptized, he and all his family. Uh, Acts 18.8. 8. Crispius, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. And then Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 1 um, verse 16. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispius and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanias, but beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. So again, none of these texts in and of themselves are conclusive one way or another. I've heard Baptists argue, well, all, the word is there in preaching all, in every, in every case. Yeah, you could make that argument, but you could also make the, make the argument that you're, what you're seeing in this constant repetition, you have, you have four different uh, episodes where there is faith, and then that faith, at least the 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 the, the familial requisition, it, it extends to the family. Could have been in a salvific way, or it could have just been in a kind of two tier covenantal way, where uh, the head of the household is saved, and then he brings his family into the covenant relationship uh, with the Lord, much like that would have happened in ancient Israel. So again, not conclusive one way or another, but it's 
it's anecdotal evidence that, that you could look at the New Testament. So yeah, what we're seeing is a continuation of the model that was in the Old Testament. Uh, the second text, I'll call it the Holy Children text. And this text is found in Corinthians 7. And to me, it's a very interesting to study from almost any angle. However, for our current topic of interest, take notice of how Paul classifies children with only one single believing parent. Paul writes, and this is 1 Corinthians 7, 14, For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Very interesting text. So Paul Paul here refers to the children with a single believing parent as being quote unquote holy. And I don't think any of us, any sort of argue, he, he can't mean that they're without sin. He's not saying they're pure. Rather, I think what we see here as covenantal theologians, he's saying by proxy of growing up under a Christian parent, these children are then set apart from other children, from the rest of the world. They are special and part of the covenant church community. And again, this is a very similar structure to what it would have been like growing up in ancient Israel. You were given the sign of the covenant. You grow up learning about your religion. And thus, children of the Israelites were holy compared to the rest of the world or the Gentiles. So again, what we're looking for is continuity of this model to help it see it carry through from the old to the new. And I think that text is a particularly compelling one. Uh, the next text we'll look at is, is in the book of Ephesians. And to begin, I want to draw attention to the structure of Paul's letter to the to to the church of Ephesus in the, the letter of Ephesians. And after so he begins with a discourse of wonderful theology in, in uh, chapters one through four. And after he does this, he begins addressing certain people groups specifically within the church uh, in chapter five. And, and take notice of how Paul sequentially addresses people using a structure that is very modeled like a covenantal household. He begins with instructions for husbands and then wives and then children and then finally bond servants. And I've always found that structure to be fascinating, how perfectly it mirrors what we would understood to be uh, kind of that, that federal headship within, within a home. Uh, so, so let's look at the text in more detail. Paul writes in Ephesians 6.1 to children. Paul writes specifically to children. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your mother and father. This is the first commandment with a promise. So no, notice there that Paul, then he goes on from there, right? But notice that Paul cites that a child's obedience to his parents is, quote unquote, in the Lord. Uh, kind of rhetorical question here. Can children be expected to follow a commandment for a covenant for which they don't belong? Is it possible for all of the children within that church? Is it possible that all the children within that church were professing believers? Maybe, but more likely, Paul is addressing the church as a whole. He's speaking to the entire visible church. And the children were part of considered part of that church body. And when the when this letter was read to the congregation, the children weren't excluded. They were brought in. They were submitting to it. They were listening to it. So when it was read, it was read with an intent for all children to hear this instruction from Paul that they might repent and obey their parents. So again, that was uh, Ephesians 6.1. Um, a few other texts, there's a, just kind of looking a little more survey level, but there's several other texts in the in the Gospels that while not directly addressing covenantal theology or infant baptism, I think they can help us get an ethos, if you will, kind of a, a sense of attitude of the New Testament um, feeling towards families and children. And I felt I have found them helpful in minor ways over the years. Uh, for example, in the early Gospel of Luke, we find a prophecy being fulfilled about John the Baptist. 
And Luke writes, quote, He will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to their Lord God, and he will, will go before them in the spirit of, para, of power, excuse me, power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. Now, it's well known that John the Baptist came to prepare a way for Jesus's ministry. Yet in this prophecy, there's a phrase that I, I don't hear a lot of people speak of often, but Luke points out, and he's quoting Malachi 4.6, that John will, quote, turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. And I find it beautiful that woven within the preparation plan for the coming kingdom of Jesus is a focus on the restoration of relationships within families. And he's restoring, and the gospel is continuing to restore and rebuild the familial unit, the family unit. And this is later signified within with repentance and baptism. I find that a very fascinating text in kind of a minor way, again, uh, as we continue to build this argument with with uh, with little blocks here and there, kind of building a structure, right? And another text we're citing that I think doesn't require a lot of explanation I'm sure any time we, we people think about children being mentioned in the Bible, this is a text that comes up pretty often. Matthew 19, 14, our Lord Jesus uh, says and commands, quote, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for such that belongs to them the kingdom of heaven. So beautiful text. Our Savior was tender and, gener tender and generous towards children as we should be, but we do not expect children to find the kingdom of heaven Oh, excuse me, but I misphrased that. But do we expect to find for the, the children to find the kingdom of heaven outside of church? Do we expect that? No. As members of the visible church, we bring them to sit under God's law. We do not hinder them. We bring them to Christ. We baptize them and we pray that later in life he saves them. Uh, the last couple of verses here I'll share come out of the book of Hebrews. And uh, these texts have been uh, very stumbling blocks, I'll say, for non-classical covenantal theologians and are a favorite proof text for those who think you can lose their salvation, which you can't. Uh, but the, these couple texts here, to me, if, if I'm responding to a covenantal Baptist, so someone who believes a very similar structure to what I've described over these over these podcasts, but at the end of it, they say, well, no, the, the sign only applies to the invisible church. Like there should be a mirroring of the visible and the invisible church. Like that that's the goal, that the there is no one inside the covenant who has not professed faith or has been regenerated in that sense. And I think, to, to me personally, these two texts in Hebrews, and I'll read two of them here, are some of the most compelling against that model. Uh, say, Arguing, again, that it would be very difficult for the structure to, to exist. And I know I've read uh, the way Reformed Baptist or Covenantal Baptists respond to this, and they do have a way to explain it. Um, you know, it's basically apostasy is what they say. But I think a careful, natural reading of these texts really lends itself more to a two-tier Presbyterian covenantal structure model. So, um, and to me, see this maybe some of the most compelling texts in the New Testament as we continue to build this this anecdotal case for uh, this hermeneutic. Uh, so Hebrews six four through eight reads: For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and, and excuse me, and holding him up to contempt. 
For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it produces a crop useful for those who, whose sake it has been cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. And I think why many people struggle with this text, because again, just kind of a natural reading, if you're just scrolling, reading the letter, it can sound like you're what, what the author here is describing is someone who's losing their salvation. And moreover, it can be especially challenging if, again, you idealize the invisible church to be identical with the visible church, like 1689 federalism, covenantal reform Baptist, what I've described earlier. Because what you're having here, it sounds like there's someone who was, who was there and is no longer there, right? However, with a reformed and covenantal framework, there's no need for what I'd say systematic theological gymnastics to make sense of this text. You can read it naturally and understand what's happening. Because as we approach this text with an understanding that there is an invisible bride of Christ within the ecclesiological visible body, meaning the visible church, the meaning and the text clears tremendously. What the author of Hebrews is describing is a tragic situation where someone has grown up in the church, they've experienced wonderful things, and later apostatized. The author of Hebrews says that they've, quote, tasted the goodness of the word and the heavenly gift. And perhaps this implies that they were baptized, took communion, sacraments. Uh, you, you know, there's a lot of ways you could take that. But whatever the case, they never realized true faith. They never own their faith, so to speak. And though the rain of God's word has fallen on them, they, quote, bear thorns and thistles. And the text says that they are, quote, worthless and their end is to be, quote, burned. And their time within the covenant church, they likely, uh, and I'll quote 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine here, uh, ate and drank judgment upon themselves. They were part of the visible body in every single way, recognized as uh, visible members of the community, but never professed and came out to true faith. They were members of the visible church, but never became part of the invisible bride of Christ. That is to say, they may have been in church, but they never became the true church. Uh, another text here, which is often goes hand in hand with this one, is Hebrews 10, 29 through 31. And it reads, how much, quote, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by one who has trampled underfoot the son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living, of the living God. And that's Hebrews 10, 29 through 31. And this is, a, I would say, a similar situation. What we're seeing here is as presented in the previous text in Hebrews 6. The author is warning of someone who has been sanctified by the covenant. That's significant to me for to this, if we're looking at trying this two-tier understanding of, of a covenantal structure. They were sanctified by the covenant but also remain under God's judgment. Think about that. If you have a synonymous Baptist Baptist view where you've got someone who is completely in the church and the only way they're in the church is because they're, they are in faith. So the church is only made up of the believing ones and all of the judge, they are there because all of the judgment has fallen on Christ. How can that be? How could they be sanctified by the covenant, but also remain under God's judgment? And this, and this, like, the Lord will judge his people. Like, this is what it says. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And this this dichotomy, I think, can be really difficult. Now, again, Baptists do have a way of explaining it. 
Uh, I won't go into details. I think they would say this is someone who's just truly apostatized and they were recognized. And probably practically speaking, it plays out the same way. There was someone who is in church um, and then has fallen away. But again, the natural reading of this, you have someone who is sanctified by the covenant. How could they be sanctified by a covenant from which they were not a part of? Right. And and again, I think that dichotomy can be difficult to reconcile for some Baptist. And to the point... Again, that question, how can this situation exist, exist if we make no ecclesiological distinction between the invisible and visible church? Um, this text, maybe more than, than any other in the New Testament, I think, makes a clear distinction of that two-tier, two-part system within the Christian local church ecclesiology. And it can be a very, very challenging verse for some, but if you have a covenantal hermeneutic, this text, while terrifying, tragic, um, and scary, frankly scary, it reads naturally and logically. You have someone who's in the covenant. They've been baptized into the covenant. They have, as the, the scripture says there, they've trampled underfoot the son of God and proclaimed the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. They'll have outrageous spirit of grace. And then it says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. The Lord will judge his people. The Lord will judge his people. How can God judge his people if his people are synonymous with only the elect, right? A single, like that, the Baptistic view where you have synonymous invisible church and visible church. Um, so again, a natural reading of that I think lends itself to a covenantal hermeneutic. And um, yeah, very, very scary text. Uh, so anyway, that is the last text I want to provide. That, that concludes this short uh, survey view of a defense of infant baptism. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Uh, to my Baptistic brothers and sisters, if you stuck with me through the entire way, I'm grateful for you. Thank you that we are co-laborers in the kingdom of God. We may not agree on all these texts, but I hope, if nothing else, that this will lead to healthy, godly discussion. May iron sharpen iron. And may uh, we tune in next time. May the grace of God be with you. Thank you so much. This has been The Chorus in the Chaos.